Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the very first episode of this new podcast series called Footmarks, in which I, Behram Kazi, will be talking to Jared Kimber about his work, primarily. And on the menu today is his series that he wrote for the IPL MVPs. So, Jared, I, of course, read all three pieces. And what I gather is that the inspiration came from a place where you felt like when the IPL started, T20 cricket was very, very new mm. and no one really knew a lot about it. And the knowledge was very, very limited. And here, you know, when we're in the 16th season and everything, there's a lot of T20 knowledge and I'm going to dig your or pick your brain regarding that as well. But just to re-examine the performances of all of these players over the years, was that the inspiration or was there more to it? Do you know what? There's a lot to it. That was certainly a big part of it, right? Where I was thinking to myself... Um, when the IPL started, we didn't know much. So there must be seasons that we've forgotten about that were actually really, really good. The other thing was that the IPL, it, part of this is because it's a two-month tournament and part of this is just the way that the sort of the cricket ca- ca- you know, uh, culture works now. It's There's no going back to three years ago. And talk, I mean, I hear people talk about, you know, Sunrises as a poverty franchise. My, Sunrises were great. Like they had a brilliant team and they had, you know, they had the Fizz and then they got rid of the Fizz and they ended up with Rashid Khan, like just a fantastic team, um, you know, and and those things not really talked about that much anymore. And the other thing is that players like Virat Kohli, obviously, and, and, and MS Dhoni take up a lot of the oxygen because they're great Indian players as well. But are they the best IPL players? Like, is there not something else? And so we really wanted to do that. Uh, we're really lucky. Obviously, I work with Cheyenne now as well, and Ritwick also, you know, helped us with the with the mechanics of trying to, you know, get all these numbers together. But what I wanted to do is sort of take it in a more. I I, I want the conversation around T Twenty cricket and specifically the IPL, but all T Twenty cricket, just to be a little bit smarter than it has been so far. And I thought if we did this, this is a really good chance of doing it. You know. The, the series isn't this guy had the best year and, you know, this guy had an overrated year, which is, I think, how other people would, would have done it. What I wanted to say is he's the best four or five players from this season. This guy, no one even talked about, was incredible. Or this guy, do you remember him? And no one even talks about him anymore. So it was important for me to be able to go back and, and to do that. And it really, a lot of it also came out of something that me and Cheyenne are doing at the moment where, and this this project will take forever, but we're doing the 50 greatest test batters of all time. And I was like, well, if we could do it for that, surely we could do it for IPL teams and then have a look at it. And then the other thing was that if we can work out who's had 
MVP level seasons, who's had really good level seasons, and who's had average seasons, we'll actually be able to tell who the best players are rather than just being like, well, this guy's the best player ever because he's been around for 12 years. He might have only had one exceptional year, whereas there might have been another player who had three exceptional years. And it's, it's all those sort of conversations that I really wanted to have a look at. Um, there was a podcast called Thinking Basketball that did the top 50 basketballs of all time. And that's where I came up with the MVP um, idea. And essentially what they used it as was, okay, so if, if we're looking at Reggie Miller, he had zero MVP caliber years, but Reggie Miller had like 12, you know, above average at all time, great level years, just below that MVP level. And then you start to get a better idea of, okay, well, another player had an MVP year or two MVP years, but wasn't as good for as long. And that's how we wanted to start a comparing players. And, you know, me and Cheyenne have, have talked about this quite a bit and it was a very fun project to, to, oh, to be fair, Ritwick and, and Cheyenne probably did more work than me on this one, but it was a very fun project to come up with the idea of and then to, you know, um, stretch out from there. Yeah, what I particularly enjoyed about this series was the fact that you didn't really go with any conventional numbers or statistics. You came up with your own metrics and I want to talk to you about those further. You talked about true average and true strike rate for batters and true economy and true wickets for bowlers. Now, I, of course, have read the piece and have discussed this with you in person as well. But care to enlighten our viewers, of course, might, many of them might not know what these numbers mean and what their relevance, relevance is going into the future, especially with respect to T20 cricket. So true economy is something I came up with in my, at my uncle's house, having a conversation with Trent Woodhill, uh, which is a, a name drop uh, for Trent Woodhill and a less of a name drop for my uncle. Uh, shout out to Gaz if you're listening. But he, we were talking about Jay Dernbach's um, strike um, economy rate. And uh, it was a big bash game. And they were talking about how he had a really, really high economy rate. And I was like, yeah, but he bowls at the death. Of course he has a high economy rate. That means absolutely nothing without the context of when he bowls. And it was around that. I, and I knew that, that it's, it's sort of where the conversation started in my head. And then when I got into analytics – I got massively into basketball analytics because I don't know as much about baseball. And I was teaching myself baseball while learning baseball analytics. And it was just, it wasn't that it wasn't working, but it was really slow. Where I was like, I actually know a lot about basketball and basketball was having this huge analytics movement. So I was like, great, I will attach myself to that. And one of the first things I came across was true shooting percentage, which is in basketball, you shoot one pointers, two pointers and three pointers. And they were like, it's all different. And actually they should, you know, if you're shooting a three pointer, so, so in the old days, Reggie Miller is a perfect example. He, apparently Reggie Miller is going to be in every part of the show, but um, <laughs> Reggie Miller always had a low field goal percentage and we knew he was one of the best shooters in the world. And it doesn't actually make sense. Whereas on true shooting percentage, you can suddenly see that Steph Curry and Reggie Miller are right up there with Shaquille O'Neal and, you know, uh, the Joker and, and um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's, now you're saying, well, one guy's shooting near the basket, another guy's maybe shooting a lot of three throws, and the third guy's maybe shooting a lot of three-pointers. But we can actually tell their overall worth based on the weighted percentage of their shots. And I was sitting there going, well, wait a minute, we could do that with a true economy, right? I can work out if Jay Dernbach is a plus or a minus bowler. And I've showed this to Jade now as well. Um, <laughs> and and straight away, and like you just see Jade just going, this is what I wanted when I was playing. I wanted people to go... Actually, I bowl the tough overs, and so actually, I'm I'm a plus bowler, not a minus bowler, which was how he was looked at. And once I came up with that, I was like, well, that will work for strike rate as well, right? So again, if you're if you're a number four, you can have a strike rate of so so. Glenn Maxwell's a perfect example of this. Glenn Maxwell's strike rate 
is 145, 150, 155. But he's doing it in the overs where everyone else is scoring at 110, 120. He's way more worth than someone else who's got a strike rate of 145 but might be doing it in the power play of the death when everyone's going hell for leather. And what we then wanted to do is we didn't want the traditional uh, – not the traditional, that's the wrong way of putting it. There's also a benefit for not going out in T20 cricket, right? So we specifically wanted to have a metric that said, okay, so Gautam Gambia may have been an anchor, but did he have the ability to be a better anchor than other players – and also, the other thing is that what happens in T20 cricket, as you'll know, is basically all the players at the top of the order, they get they get told how great they are, and the guys in the middle don't. So Kyron Pollard isn't seen as as good a player as Chris Gale, whereas if you, hack, you, you go deep into this, it's like Kyron Pollard was also absolutely sensational. So what we wanted to do is say, okay, so Kyron Pollard comes in and the score is, I don't know, four, they're four wickets down, they're 80 runs in the 10th over. What does the average player make? At that point, what does the average number six make? And it's probably not that many. They probably average about 12 or 13 in that situation at a strike rate of 140. Well, what's Kyron Pollard done in that situation, right? So he might be double. And MS Doney is a perfect example of that. If suddenly, MS Doney's record, you know, from true average went up. And then the true wickets thing was, again, it's a contextualized thing. My biggest problem is, more often than not, this isn't always the case, but it's, it's a little bit the case that the bowlers who end up with the most wickets are the ones who bowl the most of the death right? Because that's at the death when people are just swinging around, you end up with a bunch of cheap wickets. And it's not to say that very, taking wickets at the death is not important, but we also have to contextualize that again. If you have ended up your year taking 18 wickets and the guy next to you has taken 22 wickets and he's taken 75% of his at the death and you've taken 75% of yours in the power play, you're a much more important bowler to your team. And we, we wanted to keep it as simple as possible because we're coming up with these metrics. I actually think that true wickets should work on a per 24 ball basis, for instance, because you, you know, you, you don't want the person in the, at the end of it, someone will end up with a great strike, uh, a great true wickets percentage just because they've played a million games and they're an above average bowler. We want to be able to do stuff like that. There's also the other thing of when your wicket, uh, I think I'm, I might be making these numbers up slightly, but if you take a wicket in the first over, it takes 25 runs off the expected, um, total of the game. If you take a wicket at the end, it takes one run off, right? So the impact of your wickets also matters. We haven't even factored in chasing yet, which is a completely different form of batting than just batting first. There's all these different things to have a look at um, that we can. But I suppose what, what happens more often than not is that analytics people f chase one number. And what me and Cheyenne really wanted to do was make sure that we had a bunch of numbers, that we can look at for, for plays. And we've only started with two for batting and two for bowling, but eventually we want to get to everything and we want it to be contextual and we want it to make sense um, so that very, very good players get the credit that they deserve. And uh, other players who need some help can actually find, oh, I'm not doing as well here. It looks, I made 500 runs this year and I thought I had a good year, but actually maybe I didn't help the team as much as I could have. Yeah, well, viewers, if you listen to that and you are a cricket nerd and a data nerd in particular, and you did not have multiple orgasms, then go get checked <laughs> because Jared just broke the internet, the data internet over there. But anyway, you mentioned Glenn Maxwell and I had this question penciled in for later on. But since you brought him up, I made an observation in your piece is that in IPL 7, 
Glenn Maxwell had a true strike rate, uh, strike rate of plus 61.6. I have not seen a higher true strike rate in your entire piece than that. And his average entry point was 6.4 overs, which is ridiculous. It's after the power play and going at that, mm. you know, decent a clip or, or even more than decent, right? It's absolutely belligerent. Would you say that like before Sky was Glenn Maxwell the Sky we never knew we had? Yeah, I think. I think Glenn Maxwell, so you have to take Andre Russell out of all these conversations, right? Mm. Because Andre Russell is slightly different. And because of his bowling, it's, I don't want to say he's accidentally thought of as a batter, but he was probably, especially when he was younger, thought of as a bowling all-rounder who could slog, right? Glenn Maxwell was a batter. And Glenn Maxwell is a very unique individual. And there, he's had a lot of problems within the Australian setup where he doesn't quite I don't know if toe the line is the right way of putting it, but mm. he's got a really weird way of doing warm-ups. He's got a really weird way of batting in the nets. Um, so, for instance, the Australian team, he, I, think it, I think this is right. At, I think this is the end of his net session. He basically goes freestyle, right, where he tries to invent new shots. And when he was playing for Australia, they were saying, what are you doing? You're a professional player. Mm. You shouldn't be doing these stupid shots in the nets. Everyone else looked at the middle overs as a – Manny Cohen, the, fa- the Test Match Sofa commentator, always used to call them agreed-upon singles. Well, you've got, the, you've got the fielders out on the boundary, and you're just like, well, I'm just going to keep knocking the ball out to you and take those one, one runs. And it's obviously slightly more than that in the middle overs of T20, but it's kind of that kind of thing. We're not going to go too hard because it's the middle overs, right? Coach Glenn Maxwell looks at the world completely differently, and because he plays in a different way, I think he just went – I'm going to hit the ball as hard as I can. And because he's a good player against spin and a good hitter of spin specifically, that's actually the best place for him to be. He doesn't like high pace that much. He doesn't particularly like it when there's all seamers on. Um, he probably prefers it a little bit more when there is there are spinners being bowled or guys who bowl slower balls. Those are the kind of bowlers he really likes attacking. That's kind of the middle overs, right? And so you talk about that explosion, uh, explosion of his true strike rate. That is because everyone else in cricket for a long period of time is just knocking the ball around. And Glenn Maxwell is like, I refuse to knock the ball around. And A.B. de Villiers did it, but slightly later. Andre Russell did it, but slightly later. And as you say, Sky has come in to start doing it now. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see more and more players like this. I remember having a conversation with, I think it was with George Bailey and Dan Christian at one stage. And I got a message from Dan Christian in another game going, did you see where I batted in this game? And I hadn't even seen the game. I was like, uh, no, what happened? And he said, <laughs> I went up the order. He said, because we knew I had a good matchup with the bowlers and we were trying to maximize that middle over period rather than everyone can smash it at the death. And he went back to that other role, partly because he saw it in a completely different way to Glenn Maxwell. He was like, actually, what I want to do is face about 10 or 15 balls, get set, and then at the death, I can score at two, two and a half runs a ball, which Dan Christian did everywhere outside of the IPL basically. Um, and he thought about it and, and everything else. Glenn Maxwell doesn't think about it, right? Glenn Maxwell sees a ball and he's going to try and hit it as hard as possible because he thinks it's the ball in the right area for him. That's not how batters think. So Glenn Maxwell, by not thinking like a batter, has probably set the modern template down for what we will see, which will be middle overs and forces. Sun on Ryan has done it. Andre Russell have done it. Uh, AB DeVilliers has done it. Sky is now doing it. We asked, Roger Paxer is probably another player that maybe might have fit mm-hmm. that kind of it certainly should fit that kind of um uh, skill set i think we'll see others but i think that 
Maxwell is very much the template for that kind of player. And even if he doesn't end up being a great, recognizable uh, IPL player in, in the future, I think he'll have a very important part in modern T20 cricket just because he was that dude. Yeah, I mean, when you think of like the ramp scoop shot, you think of Joss Butler. Similarly, when you think of the reverse sweep, Glenn Maxwell is one of the first names that comes to your mind, right? He's made that shot his very own. Reverse everything. Like you said, he's he's been like an amazing spin basher over the years and those numbers are quite ridiculous. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that Punjab wasn't a better side because they had, you know, Maxwell's resources in a time where not everyone had caught on to it. But anyway, I'm going to rewind the clock all the way back to IPL season one Mm -hmm. because that's the purpose of this, right? Going back to a time when there wasn't enough knowledge about T20 cricket. And you have some amazing outliers in the season. So Hilton Veer, of course, is head and shoulders above the rest of the bowlers with respect to like the true statistics. And then you've got Yusuf Patan, who was doing something similar to Maxwell. He was that middle or- order yeah. enforcer with the bat who would come and strike at a very high strike rate. And, and I mean, he was the one who ultimately won Rajasthan that final, you know, if, if anyone remembers. And then, of course, people remember that tournament for Sean Marsh scoring a ton of runs, accumulating. You think of Shane Warne, you know, the leader and how he won the Raj- for the Rajasthan Royals and got them their only title till date. But the one person that perhaps no one talks about when they recount that season is Shane Watson. Who was the and MVP, you- by the way, which is the interesting yeah, thing. Exactly. They got it right. Like when you look at it and yet you're right. No one talks about him anymore. Yeah. No one talks about him. If you look at his numbers, you know, a true average of 20.2 and a true strike rate of 23.8. Along with that, you've got 17 wickets at an economy of 7.7, 490 or sorry, 472 runs at more than nine runs and over. He's giving you a lot over here. And even in one of the later seasons, I can't remember which one exactly, but a few seasons later, you mentioned how Shane Watson ticked or crossed off all of those boxes. True strike rate, true economy, true wickets, and even true average. So that is a very, very rare quality to have. And do you think like when you look at the history of the IPL, particularly the early years, is Shane Watson like probably one of the more underrated cricketers? I mean, I know he's rated, but these statistics Mm. show us that he was like literally MVP as the article suggests. I think um, I did did something a few years ago where we had uh, Crick Info, I think it was me, Gaurav, I think, Maybe Matt Roller was on it as well. And the idea was to come up with uh, the best T20 11 that had existed at that point. Mm-hmm. And I fought against Shane Watson over and over again. I, <laughs> it wasn't that I didn't think he was a fantastic player. The, his 2012 World Cup, go and have a look at what he was doing at that World Cup. Australia basically had no right being in the semifinal in that tournament and almost went on to win it because of Shane Watson. Um, and so I knew how good he could be. It wasn't until I did this that I realized just how excellent he was because you, you talked about the four pluses. I just want to explain <laughs> what that basically means. It means that when he batted, he averaged more than you would expect someone to average, and he did it at a higher strike rate. And when he bowled, he took more wickets than you would expect a wicket from the overs that he bowled to take, and that he did it at an economy above that, right? Most Look at Andre Russell. Andre Russell has been a fantastic player at times in, in the IPL. It's very rare that Andre Russell has a good um, economy rate, right? In fact, usually he has a terrible economy rate. Sunil Narayan had those incredible years. Again, he's making less runs than a normal batter. You're talking about, at that point, Shane Watson, and and some of this is any all-rounder has a bit of grandfatherly treatment, if you know what I mean. Like, 
Wardo probably wasn't bowling all the trickiest overs. He probably got the ball when it was swinging because he swings it a little bit, and then he bowled a little bit in the middle. Probably wasn't bowling that much at the depth. I, we didn't go to that depth to see where he's bowled. But even so, if you have a batter who can give you four overs of which you are going to get a good bowling performance, not a par bowling performance, not a below average bowling performance, but a good bowling performance, we just haven't seen that many um, career or single years in the IPL when anyone has ever done that. We talk about all-rounders all the time. And if you go back on the old metric of all-rounders in cricket, it used to be someone who can um, get their place in, in the side for batting or bowling. That's almost never happens, right? Even Keith Miller would have struggled to get into the side as a batter. Maybe Aubrey Faulkner. Sobers, perhaps, but his bowling wasn't sensational. Callis probably doesn't get in those South African teams regularly as a bowler, right? And when we get to ODI cricket, we start to see this even more and more, right? We start to see, oh, okay, this guy's really good at this and really good at that, but we can't get 10 overs out of him all the time or four overs out of him all the time. Or he could bat at number six or seven, but not when we have a collapse. If we have a collapse, he's the worst person to come in at number six or seven. Shane Watson is a perfect example of someone who actually had the ability to do those two things. Unfortunately, because his body fell apart, his bowling wasn't at the level that it needed to be, and we maybe didn't see enough seasons. But it was an absolutely exceptional season, and the fact that he did it twice, I think, does probably cement, should have cemented his legacy a little bit more. My memory was, I don't know how you thought about that first season, but my memory was that Sean Marsh and Sohal Tanvir got their flowers a lot, mm-hmm. and they still get Definitely. mentioned a lot those two seasons. Where Shane Watson, as you said, probably just disappeared a little bit. And when we had a look at this, we were like, this might be, you know, the, the two seasons he had might be the two of the best all-round seasons that anyone has ever played um, in the IPL. Yeah. And they were by the same guy, you know, a bunch of years apart. Uh, when he got it right, he was just an exceptional player. And I'm now glad that Gaurav and Matt uh, forced him into that uh, best ever 11 of, uh, of T20 players. Yeah, I mean, I think the really important takeaway over here is that when you look at most all-rounders, it's like, okay, you're good at, you're great at one skill Mm. and you hold your own in the other, or you're bits and pieces. You can do just enough in both facets or all three facets. But those numbers by Shane Watson suggest that he was right up there doing both of his duties. And and he's he's a terrific fielder as well. So doing all three of his duties perfectly. But anyway, we'll move on to IPL season two. And something you mentioned in this piece, which I really liked, is that when you were talking about, you know, T20 cricket in in its early days and how people didn't know much about it, you talked about how RCB went ahead and picked a test 11. Well, in season two, there is a massive anomaly with respect to that because Anil Kumble Mm. was one of the MVPs. Uh, He has a true wickets... uh, figure of plus 5.4 true economy of minus one he is the only player in the history of the IPL to get the player of the match award in a losing cause in the final and given that you know when we think of Anil Kumble we think okay 619 test wickets you know decent-ish ODI numbers but more so a test match bowler a very very legendary test match bowler for India but you never really think of T20 cricket so my question to you is does Anil Kumble the T20 cricketer deserve a rebrand (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think he's one of those guys who Murali and Warren were more obvious. And obviously they were better test match bowlers. No one's, you know, he was fantastic, but he wasn't quite on their level. He was also coming to the end of his career. You talk about you talk about his um ODI bowling. I just want to bring this up. He played 270 Oh wait, yeah, two hundred and seventy-one games. He took three hundred and thirty-seven wickets at an average of thirty and an economy of four point three on very flat pitches quite a lot of the time. There's nothing to suggest Mm. there that he won't be a good T20 player, right? Mm. But because he was seen as this sort of slightly old-fashioned cricketer, he probably slips 
below what we think. But when you actually start to go through it, it's just like, well, wait a minute. He has one of the best economy rates in test cricket of all time. No one ever hit Anil Kumble off the square, right? And I remember in that season, and I didn't bring it, bring it up in the video just because we were trying to get through so many players. But I remember in that season, he bowled a leg spinner um, and someone hit him for four. And the next ball, he bowled a wrong end and it ragged this wrong end. Much more than you usually would see him bowl in a test match. And he dismissed whoever it was. I think it was a left-hander. And I remember sitting there going, oh, God, that is that that's a proper cricket brain and he has all the skills he can't hit him off the square and he's already worked out that if he could spin it in both directions and no one can pick it and by the end of that second season of the IPL he was bowling so many wrong ends and so many variations and everything else that actually he was a perfect t20 bowler but we never really thought about that and and I'm going to throw him in with this is the most bizarre uh, player to pair him with but I'm going to pair him with Vrinda Sewag who comes up again and again in those early seasons, right? You mm. probably have a question with him, so I've saved you asking this question, yeah. right? <laughs> they are completely different players. They were both seen as average ODI players. I'm sorry, if you take 337 wickets in 271 games at an economy of 4.3, right? You're not an average ODI player. But we didn't think of Anil Kumble as a great ODI player, yeah. right? Verna Sewag is another perfect example of this. I, I talked about this, might have been with... Um, with Barat recently, but I remember doing a piece on Andrew Simons and calling Verinda Sewag a great ODI player in that piece. And, you know, Usman Sami Adin, you know, my, my great friend and my editor, I sent back a message going, what? <laughs> Sewag's not a great ODI player. <laughs> but if you look at his numbers from our eyes today, he was a fantastic ODI player. The problem was that other people averaged more than him, but we never factored in that his strike rate was so absolutely extraordinary. So I do think that in Anil Kumble's case and for in the Sewag's case, that there might have been better players around than them at the time. But if you go back and have a look at their numbers now um, in ODI cricket, it would be hard to say that these weren't absolutely fantastic players in that format of the game. And so it makes sense that they would dominate. And I would say in both of their cases, or even though – Sewag was definitely a very good uh, one-day player. His skill set makes even more sense in T20 cricket, right? And the same with Kumble, because I think in Kumble's case that you can probably knock him around a little bit more in one-day cricket. You know, the, the sort of – I wouldn't say anyone ever milked him because his economy rate doesn't suggest that, but you, you knew he wasn't going to run through you. Because if you look at him in T20 cricket, I've just got the numbers up here. Never played a T20 international. So I think a lot of this will be IPL. 54 games, 57 wickets. So almost a wicket every game, or just over a wicket every game. Bowling average of 24, right? And an economy of 6.69. The problem with Kumble is that you could milk him. And we saw that in test matches. In T20 cricket, there's no milking. Do you know what I mean? If you if you stop yeah. scoring off someone, they end up with Rashid Khan with an incredibly low strike rate. And if you try and smash them everywhere, someone like Anil Kumble is going to get you out. So I do think that he was sort of incorrectly. And again, this is, I don't want to say, oh, everyone back in the old days was an idiot and I was a genius, right? I thought Sewag <laughs> was an average ODI player. I thought Kumble was an average ODI player. We didn't know anything about this game. Right, because no one had that that you know the extra amount of analysis that you get now didn't even exist back then, right? Now that we can look at it, we can go. What? We were all sleepy on this fantastic player, and I think that Anil Kumble, without a doubt, was a would have been a fantastic player in T Twenty cricket. His ability to spin the ball both ways, and I'll tell you one other thing that I noticed in that season that he, that he did very well. 
very hard to sweep or slog sweep him because he's so tall and he got extra bounce, right? There's another leg spinner that I'm positive you're going to ask me about later on who I think also fits that uh, mold. And mm-hmm. I do think in that, in that way, um, it's another reason that we slept on him. Again, back when he played, how many slog sweeps would, would um, Anil Kumble get against him in an ODI? It's probably two or three towards the back end of his overs. Now, right. if you're a leg spinner, you might face five, six, seven, eight attempts at that. It's a, just a different form of game, and I think it just slightly favoured what he did even more. Yeah, I think another thing that Kumble used to do really well is he used to get a lot of drift, mm. something similar to Shahid Afridi perhaps. And I mean, Kumble obviously has better numbers than Afridi, but there was a period, like a six-year period, like 2009 to 13, where uh, Afridi went mad no, with the ball as a leg spinner. Afridi was, and I, I I will put him right up there. We laughed at Afridi back in the day. You were probably a bit too young to be laughing, but although, mm-hmm. although you know, maybe I was a bit too young. Maybe Afridi was a bit Are too young. Are you ever too young to be laughing at Afridi though? You go back and you look at his numbers. <laughs> He was an absolutely great ODI player and a fantastic T20 player in a period where no one understood T20 cricket at all. And again, if 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 I was doing this on Afridi's numbers, um, uh, and I've done it, I did an article where I went back and looked at Afridi's early T20 period. Just an absolute world beater. And we were laughing and laughing. And this guy was seeing ODI cricket in the way that it should have been played and none of us did. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so you mentioned Virendra Sehwag. Of course, I did have a question on him because he is like an anomaly in the first few seasons. I would say first five to six seasons where in the true strike rate column, you just always see him towards the extreme right. It's just he's always there, but you don't always see him up there with respect to true average yeah. because he just goes hard. There is one cricketer, however, that you do see in true average and true strike rate and who was just scoring runs for fun, left, right and centre for like three to four seasons in between and that is Christopher Henry Gale, who I learned through your piece wasn't even picked in that original 2011 squad and he was a replacement for Dirk Nannis. Definitely not like for like. But the point or the question I have over here is that Chris Gale was absolutely ridiculous with the bat, right? Mm-hmm. He scored 175 in a game once upon a time. And at that period or in that period in, in world cricket, he was the, you know, template or, you know, epitomized the T20 batter role. And yet Chris Gale does not have an IPL title. Now, is that because maybe one of those seasons he coincided with Sunil Narayan's best year as a bowler where... I don't think, like even you said, that no one ever has ha- probably had as good a season with the ball as Sunil Narayan had. But it ultimately comes down to the question that, you know, this is cliche, but a lot of people and many people, like Dale Stainer said it, Azam Mahmood said it, that batters win you games and bowlers win you tournaments. So yeah. is that the reason why RCB could never really win a title with Chris Gale in their ranks in that kind of form? There's certainly, there's so much analysis now that has been done on this that suggests that's true. Um I don't know if I don't know if it's one of those things where the analysis came first or how it happened. I don't think that is the reason that Chris Gale hasn't won a title. Uh, you know, as in, mm. as you said, he ran up against Sunil Narayan one year. You know, RCB were an absolute mess of, of a of a franchise. You know, I've spent some time uh, uh, with Mister Malia uh, when I was at the CPL. Like, if he was running. If he was running RCB the way he was running um, uh, Barbados Tridents back in the day, I'm not surprised uh, that, you know, that they were making a lot of bad decisions. Uh, So I think there's probably a lot of different things. But yes, on a very basic level, you would prefer to have 
five bowlers that you know going in are going to give you consistent results because batters aren't consistent, right? You know, they have, uh, look, we talked about, I think in a previous podcast, you and I talked about Deepak Huda having averaging seven this year and had, mm-hmm. having a good year last year. Priff is sure. I've been averaging what high twenties, maybe low thirties over the last couple of years, averaged 13 this year. Um, bowlers are much more consistent in their numbers uh, because they, you know, dismissals play such a big part in batters careers. So I do think that is a part of it. Uh, look, I think it's worth saying for a long time, Gail was called the, the Bradman of T20 batting. It's not the same kind of long impact. And he had a very peculiar meth- method, which we haven't, I don't think we have numbers to fully understand the amount of dot balls that he would chew up in order to become Chris Gale has to have effect on the opposition. Uh, I know myself and Stephen Fleming completely disagree with this. I I, I think you want to match fast um, starting batters with slow starting batters. Chennai uh, traditionally have always had a lot of slow starting batters, but Gale was such a slow starting batter. Uh, that if he did get out after 15 balls sometimes, it could really cause you a huge amount of problems within your team. So I think that as mm-hmm. brilliant as he was, it's also worth saying that he would probably cause problems for the rest of the team around him on the days he failed, but also on some of the days when he succeeded but maybe didn't go as deep as he wanted to, um, and there was a lot of wasted balls early on. So, look, he's a complicated player. I, I, don't, think there's a, I don't think there's an argument that he's not, I think – even his biggest fans would say that it's not the easy. He couldn't run between wickets, for instance. Um, you know, there are so many things about him that were really, really odd. But what a fantastic player once he got going. And also, as you said, the ability to match that true strike rate with that true average. Mm-hmm. It's a, that AB Villiers and Chris Gale are probably the greatest players we've ever seen uh, manage to do that over a long period of time. So I'm not done with RBs. Uh, I keep calling them RBC, RCB. Royal Challenges Bangalore, not the Royal Bank of Canada. Anyway, so I want to jump to IPL 9 and that was the year of Virat Kohli and David Warner. But I want to talk about Virat Kohli. If you look at his numbers, true average of plus 53 and true strike rate of plus 23.6, which is ridiculous. Mm. And I remember at that time when Kohli was having that season, 100 after 100 after 100, we were all like in awe. But now, with all the knowledge that we have today... Let's revisit that season. Let's try to look at it from a different lens. And do you think that it might have been more beneficial for the team had he traded those two numbers a bit? Like yeah. traded in a bit of the true average for a, dip, a bit of the true strike rate? Do you think that argument has merit? I think true average is a, a very good metric. And I think we could probably in the future, we'll probably change it slightly as well to upgrade it. It's probably the wrong way. But I think there'll be a separate metric that will also look at what happens at the other end, right? You know, mm-hmm. Kale Raul would be really fascinating to have a look at what the average was at the other end um, of the games he was playing in. And I think that's a worthy th- addition to it. The thing about if someone has a true average, what did you say it was? I can't remember. Was it plus 50? It was plus four. 53. <laughs> 53 on the dot, right. So, which is ridiculous. The thing about that is if you're making that many more runs, it means you're in for so much longer and you're set for so much longer that you shouldn't have a negative true economy. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. that means he had been set almost every innings he played, right? Mm-hmm. What it doesn't tell you is the amount of times that in order for him to get set, he would have chewed up a lot of balls early on. And that's going back to what we were just talking about with Gale. And Gale is a, another fascinating thing. The difference with Gale is that when Gale gets set, his his economy, his runs per over go to two runs a ball, two and a half runs a ball, three runs a ball, right? <laughs> 
No, normal people can't do that. And so Virat Kohli, that season that you're talking about, and you can throw a bunch of KL Rahul seasons in here. I would never say they were failure seasons. What I would say mm-hmm. is that, and you're probably asking this question because you're Pakistani and you want to talk about Baba and, and Rizwan. <laughs> there is an argument that says that if your true average is that high and your true economy is a plus, but not a massive plus, at a certain point, mm-hmm. you have made the decision to chew up a lot of balls to get to the point at the end of the game when everyone is making runs really quickly. And you, you can't actually catch up the strike rate, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. everyone is scoring quicker. So if you think right. about it on a very, very basic level of, let's say you score eight runs and over um, in the power play, and then you score at seven and a half runs and over for the next six overs and eight and a half ro- runs and over for the next six overs and nine and a half runs and over for wh- whatever's left. I've lost my math um, there, right? <laughs> if you score at that rate, you will end up with a really good strike rate, right? But you would also end up with a, a true economy that is almost zero, right? And that's why I can oh, sorry, true true strike rate of almost zero because you've gone at the same rate as everyone else has all the way through, right? Mm -hmm. If you have that kind of true average, you should also at a certain point have a very good true strike rate to go with that. And I'm not talking about normal batters here. We're talking about Rizwan and Kao Raul and Virat Kohli and Baba Azar. These are top of the top batters. They are making Mm -hmm. decisions to bat slower, right? Right. And that has an impact on everyone else in the team. I don't think that that is, I think it's a very old fashioned way and it's a very ODI cricket way of looking at things where you have to bat longer, right? You just, uh, it's just part of the game. T20 cricket doesn't quite work like that. You know, it, it it's a finite amount of resources and you, you have 11 batters on your roster. You really should be trying to maximize your impact as much as possible. And there's a lot of players who don't do that. So it's a, it's a mm-hmm. fascinating season that Viracol, there's no way I would sit here and say it's not a great season because to be able to be able to do that should allow for everyone else to bat around you. But that's the thing. You are making sure that everyone has to bat around you. And that's a very different thing to what Chris Gale can do because Chris Gale can make the runs for your end and his end. Absolutely. And uh, on this very same note, actually, I want to draw your attention to IPL 11 from one Indian legend to another. This is MSD I'm talking Mm. about, of course. Mahendra Singh Dhoni back in a Chennai shirt after a bit. Lifts the title with Chennai. Of course he does. But if you look at his numbers, they're really, really interesting, aren't they? I mean, he also has an amazing true average of 52.8 plus 52.8. That's nearly the same true average that Kohli had, just uh, 0.2 less than that. But if you look at his true strike rate, it's in single digits. And it kind of makes sense with Tony, doesn't it? I mean, he plays his cricket at Chipok. Mm. And then also he's the sort of player who has kind of epitomized that finisher role in the sense that he will dig deep. He will keep, you know, um, holding the fort from one end and he will explode towards the end where, as you said, everyone is expected to explode. Mm. But because it's Dhoni, he is the finisher and he's done it time and again. For Particularly for him, do you think that true strike rate might be a flawed statistic because that's just been his game? No, because I think it actually gives us far more information about him than we've ever had before mm-hmm. because now we can tell he's batting like the algorithm. He's literally trying to stay par. And then as you said, there are some games he explodes at the end and he wins it. And there are some games he Mm -hmm. doesn't and they lose. Yeah. Right. And that's fine. That's why he's become the player he has. And obviously he has a fantastic record, but he's putting a lot of pressure on the players he's batting with. I I did a video about this last IPL, I think about him and Michael Bevan. Michael Bevan and MS Dhoni can only be Michael Bevan and MS Dhoni if the guys at the other end are whacking it. 
right? Mm -hmm. You're putting a lot of pressure on everyone else to be able to get you there at the hope that you can then steal it at the end. It is a, it's a fascinating way of doing it and very different than perhaps the way that David Miller or Kyron Pollard would go about it. Different kinds of very good chases. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think what it tells you is that, uh, MS Dhoni understood the game in a way that was, that it was being played at that time. And, he knew that uh, he, he would get him into that situation. Where MS Dhoni would be more fascinating is to go back to that conversation at the start to have a look at mm. the chasing index, right? Mm. That's where it would be really fascinating. When he was specifically in a chase, let's just get rid of his other figures. I, I, I would say, and I think this is right in that video, that he had far more impact when he chased than when he – and he batted slower and had more mm -hmm. impact, right? But that's because – we always think of chases as being really, really high and really, really hard. You know, about, I reckon it was about 2012, I looked into it, which player had been not out in the most chases. There were two players, Gail and Michael Klinger. Do you know who mm. Michael Klinger is? Yes, I do. I do. He played for Perth, didn't he? He did. Uh, yeah, he's a Melbourne yeah. boy, played South Australia, played Western Australia, mm. played for Perth. He's currently running one of the major league franchises, I think, in in, in the uh, in I the think US. he also has the third highest T20-hundreds in like all of T20 cricket. Really good. I mean, I, I, yeah. he was a similar age to me, so I, we came up at the same time. I saw him play as like a 15-year-old, just a different level of player, but he never quite got to that top level. But he had a lot of not outs and was a very good chaser because a lot of games you're playing and you're chasing 120 or 130, Michael Klinger would just bat through the innings. And he'd be pretty sure yeah. that if he was not out, it meant that they wouldn't have lost as many wickets. Someone would be able to whack a couple at the end. And then right at the end, Michael Bevan or MS Stoney style, if he had to, he'd find a couple of extra boundaries, right? No one is sitting here saying that Michael Klinger is in the top players of all time, but he was obviously a way above average chaser. So I do think we need an extra metric for MS Dhoni going back on it. Mm -hmm. But I think really what the true economy, uh, I keep saying true economy, he's not a bowler, is he? True <laughs> strike rate tells us about him is that he understood the context of the game. He understood when to go and when not to go. And there are probably a lot of other players out there who were being dismissed because they're trying to hit sixes in the 14th over. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to score at eight runs and over in this over. Next over, I'll score at 8.2 runs and over. Next over. And he played that way. So he, I've said this before that him and Joe Root, for me, are two of the most algorithmically correct players. They understood things well before we had any data to be able to show them these sorts of things. And they play in that way. It doesn't mean that MS Dhoni, during his career, his style was out of date, right? By the end of his mm -hmm. career, his style was out of date because people played in a different in a different way. But during the peak of his career, it wasn't. And what he did was absolutely correct. You, you, you can say, if you go back and look at Michael Bevan's ODI record, it's easy to go, what? He had a strike rate of 60-odd. Michael Bevan had a huge impact on the game. He played the sport exactly as it should have been played at that time. And I think that you, there's no way to argue that MS Dhoni didn't do the same thing. Yeah, and I mean, especially with Bevan, you know, back in the day, reverse swing was a big thing in ODI cricket. So when he would come, he had to yeah. tackle with that as well. So you have to take those sort of things into account. But anyway, one of the main things that, I mean, your statistics bring to light is impact, right? That's what we're looking at at the end of the day. And there is this one cricketer whose impact in two seasons, I reckon, was just like off the charts. And I'm talking about Andre Russell, the batter, yep. in specific, like specifically. He had, I reckon, in one of the seasons, a true average north of 
30 and a true strike rate north of 50, which is quite ridiculous. Do you think that there's been any other player in the IPL, barring, you know, Surya Kumar Yadav and the new boys? We're talking about the old days. Do you think that Russell maybe changed the game over there with respect to the impact that he brought into the game? Of course, he's just a shadow of his former self these days. But those two seasons, he was absolutely MVP, the very definition of it. Yeah, I think he probably had the best batting season that we've ever had. Um, as you said, mm-hmm. um, I, you're remembering all the numbers better than me. You've, you've written your notes down. But <laughs> uh, I think it's that year that you're talking about that was probably the best year of batting we've ever had in uh, the IPL. He was probably the best batter, most important batter in the world at that stage. And remember Chris Gale and um, uh, AB a- 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 was still around. There was... You know, there was a lot of very good players out there. I remember you used a sentence in which you said that his batting was as good as AB's and his bowling was as good as Bhuvneshwar Kumar's. That, that's quite phenomenal. Yeah, so he had the, I think he had the third best all-round season just behind Shane Watson in one of those years. Mm-hmm. Look, I think what Andre Russell did was he made people think differently about batting. Sky mm-hmm. doesn't make people think differently about batting Maxwell, maybe a little bit. Yusuf Patan, maybe a little bit. Those sorts of guys. But they still, I still think Sky and Maxwell and Yusuf Patan came from a background of batting, right? The difference with Andre Russell is that it really is, he is a baseball slugger at that point. And if he does it averaging 20, he has a Sun on Orion impact where everyone's like, oh, this is cool and cute. But the fact that some years he manages to have really high average and as, he doesn't need to bowl anymore. He's bad. Even this year, as you said, he's not the same player that he used to be. But even this year, you look at his numbers, he's still good enough to be in as a specialist batter. And and I think it was that we thought, and Shahid Afridi is a really interesting one here, just to go back to him. I think we always thought that a player that played like Andre Russell or Shahid Afridi wasn't batting right mm-hmm. and actually that maybe is right in that Kane Williamson is a batter and Jeffrey Boycott is a mm-hmm. batter these guys are literally hitting the ball but they're hitting it in such a consistent way that they're still going to average a good mark right it may not be the mark that we you know we might think well you have to average 35 to be a, a specialist batter it's like but if you average 27 and you're striking at, you know, half a run or a run and a half more per over than anyone else. That's huge. And the impact that you have on that. And, you know, I've seen seasons and uh, things where Andre Russell has, you know, basically been, had, and, you know, I came up with this with um, analytics um, Jonas back in the day when we first came up with these sorts of numbers. There were years where Andre Russell was, you know, um, plus 2.5 runs and over and things like that. And, you, and, and it's just, it's a monster you know, to be able to do those sorts of things. And I think his impact will be felt in the next 20 years in a way that even some of these other players who are magnificent and deserve to be remembered probably don't have that just because I think you will get kids who will come out now and will try and hit fours and sixes as much as possible. And that will change what batting is thought of in T20 cricket. Right then, I think we've talked enough about batting. Let's move towards the bowlers because I have quite a few un- un- well anomalies lined up over here for you and it-, it makes for great reading and I'm sure it will for great viewing as well. I'm going to start off with Imran Tahir in IPL 12 and this might have been one of the most ridiculous statistics that you might have come across and I'm not sure what your reaction was to this but out of all of the true wickets that we've seen in each season... 
Imran Tahir has the highest number at plus 10.2 in IPL 12. And mind you, Imran Tahir was not young in yeah. IPL 12. Imran Tahir was never young. I was going to say. He was never, ever young. So was this when you were penning this down? Were you like a bit baffled that really Imran Tahir is the guy with the highest number of true wickets or highest true wicket statistics? No, because I've obviously, I followed his career since 2008 when he was playing club cricket mm-hmm. in England and came in to play for, say, Nottinghamshire? Maybe it wasn't Nottinghamshire. I can't remember who he played for. Um, Hampshire or Nottinghamshire out of nowhere to play um, uh, in a must-win game for a county team. Look, he's a fantastic wicket-taker, and I think we all know that coming in. What I was surprised at is when you say plus 10 wickets, you're really saying that he was he took the wickets of two bowlers, right? That is yeah. absolutely incredible. But I do think that he's a player who should have played a lot more IPL cricket and was ob- obviously fantastic. I think we've seen that if you're a spinner that doesn't have a second skill it's very hard for you to get into the ipl even you know that or rashid conversation are you saying racing to the boundary is not a skill judge because i think that's a skill you know when i first saw him play (laughs) i don't think he gets enough credit for this when i first saw him play he could not field and i don't mean he could not field as in he was the worst fielder on the team i mean he looked like a guy playing club cricket who had never fielded a ball before right he improved and he worked on his game and everything else. So I'm not surprised at anything by him around here. I think what it does say is that there have been times when the Indians have overvalued their own local spinners and undervalued overseas spinners because Indians are like, well, we create spinners. And they do. But Imran Tahir was still had one of the best years of all time. Sun on Ryan maybe had the most economical year of all time. Rashid Khan, mm-hmm. yeah, it's probably between him and Boomer and Malinga to say who's the best bowler of all time, right? So a lot of overseas spinners doing really, really well who probably could have come in seasons earlier in some cases as well. Samuel Badri basically never played in the mm-hmm. IPL, right? He played a handful of games over a couple of different seasons. He's absolutely a world-class bowler that um, should have been in. And I think Imran Tahir in that case his ability to hide his wrong-in, his ability to have multiple wrong-ins. And by that point, he was still a good enough physical specimen that he got the pace off the wicket. And that's the one other thing I would say is if you are a quick leg spinner in India and you can spin the ball both ways, that's a huge advantage, especially if you have the ability to hide it. So I'm not surprised at it, but I can imagine that there are many other people going, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, because I was really keen, right? I wanted to see which which true wickets number will be the highest. And I was like, oh, Imran Tahir. I mean, I obviously do rate Imran Tahir. Just did not expect him to be at the top of the uh, charts. But One anyway, thing I moving on I just, to... Just before you move on, true wickets, if you, do, if you are a spinner and you have a great year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you might have a good pitch or maybe you're just in form or whatever. True wickets is, I, I've come up with it so that the spinners start to pop. Because usually what happens, other than Chahal, usually what happens, all the top wicket takers are the guys who bowl, uh, swing the ball early on and then bowl at the death, right? That's when you expect wickets to happen. I want someone like Imran Tahir to be at the top of that list because it shows that the metric is right and that he took a bunch of wickets and everyone said, oh, that was a good year. But they didn't factor in the fact that generally the bo- the batting average in the middle overs is like 36 or 37. And if he's taking that many wickets, that just may he's such a positive impact to your team. Absolutely. And from one spinner to another, but now I have a few one season wonders lined up for you. And I know you were expecting this because this is your probably the the topic that you've been waiting for to talk about most. We're talking about, of course, the spinner who I think this is how you quoted it in your article, who had the best season whose name was not Sunil Narayan or Rashid Khan. 
And this guy was the star of IPL4, or well, MVP, as we put it in the article. His name was Rahul Sharma. A lot of people might not remember this guy. Lanky, leg spinner, big, tall guy. And then he just dropped off after mm. that season, like completely off the grid. I think he went for twice as worse figures in the next year. And then that was just the end of yeah. it. So what made Rahul Sharma special? And yeah, just just talk to me about this guy. He had a childhood disease. And I'm sad to say, I can't remember off the top of my head. And he had this um, wonky eye. And you don't see many top-level athletes have physical um I don't want to say deformities, but whatever it would be, you know, non-typical sort of looks, right? Mm -hmm. So straight away, you noticed him. He he was, I thought, an Anil Kumble-like bowler. I said this before. This is the guy I've mentioned before. A tall leg spinner, could spin the ball both ways, got good energy on the ball. He has this incredible impact in that first year. Everyone, everyone loves the story, right? Like of, of this guy, you know, overcoming a disability early in his life or an illness or whatever it was early in his life, you know, becoming this superstar. And then it just disappears. And I think eventually I'll do a big feature on it. But I do think that I there's something wrong with the fact that he could be that good and then disappear entirely. And I'd love to go back and actually talk to coaches and people around him to see what it was because I don't think it should have been a fluke. He was a tall leg spinner. I think that is something that even if he didn't go on to be a star in the, in the last few years, I th- think it should have maintained it. it. It wasn't a guy who lost his athleticism, right? It wasn't a guy who, as far as I saw, got the yips. He might not have bowled as well. But if you look at Kuldeep Yadav, Right, Kuldeep Yadav. I think if that happens a decade earlier, would have just been lost to Indian cricket, let alone the IPL. I think the system is a bit more professional now. So I think Rahul Sharma. I think there's a lot to unpack there. But the fact that I googled his name now, mind you, I'm in the UK, but I googled his name and it kept giving me results for Rahul Chahar. It thought I was spelling his name wrong, right? And I was just sitting there. Speaking of which, where is Rahul Chahar? (laughs) (laughs) That's another question, I suppose. But anyway, keep keep going on Sharma. (laughs) So I think from that perspective, it just shows you how little people talk about him. And it's a real shame because, as you said, those numbers are just remarkable. And he had a brilliant year and it just completely died. And I think it's a real shame that he hasn't got the respect he should have for that one year. I think it's seen as a fluke. And I remember watching him bowl that year. I didn't think it was a fluke. And I do think that um, he should have stuck around longer than he should have. But at the very least, it was nice to be able to see a year like that. Or Cameron White is another example of Cameron White, I still think should have been a much better T20 player than he was. But it was great to actually go through this and go, oh, there was one year when Cameron White actually was a freak. He was the player that everyone thought he was going to be when he was coming through in junior cricket. Mm -hmm. And he never really had that impact on the Australian team and didn't have that impact most of the time when he played in the IPL. He, he, you know, and to see him have that one year was absolutely great. And, the, you know, Prajan Oja was another one that I noticed in there as well. And I think that those are really fascinating stories. I think a lot of it also tells you about how, you know, we talk about going back to the beginning of the IPL, but also the beginning of T20 cricket. We didn't know a lot. And so mistakes were made with players that probably could have been a lot better. And I think Cameron White's a perfect example of this. Of Cameron White becomes the guy who just knocks the ball around in the middle overs. He's about as strong as any player I've ever seen in the IPL. When, I, when you see Cameron White hit a cricket ball, 
the power that he had on it. And to watch him knocking around singles, not just in the IPL, but also go back in the Big Bash and do it. You're just like, just hit everything for six, Cam. Just hit everything. Yeah, I mean, I remember he played a knock versus Pakistan in the 2010 World Cup in that semi-final, the Michael Hussey game. Cameron White played a really, really good hand. And I think he was whacking peak Afridi for sixes. So that that tells you something on those Caribbean surfaces. Yeah, and not only that, that was an important innings. I think he made Mm -hmm. another really good knock against Lasif Malinga when no one in the world could Mm -hmm. play Lasif Malinga. And he was just Mm -hmm. straight driving him. Over the uh, back over Malinga's head over and over again until they put a, ba- a fielder on a bit like what happens to Karen Pollard right on the on the side mm. screen, and and you look at you look at those are two completely different stories of but I do think back and go if we knew more, Rahul Sharma would have ended up having at least seven or eight year career as a backup and mm-hmm. playing occasionally, and if we knew more about Cameron White, we could have just said we don't need you to knock around singles. We have other guys who can knock around singles. If you want to get your eye in for 10 balls, fine. Then we want you to just hit sixes. And and I do think that it shows that he had that within his game on his own. And sadly, we didn't see enough of it at the top level. And Prajan Oja, I'm just going to throw him in at the end. He was a perfect example of someone who was, until he was called for throwing, was absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. And I think it says a lot about Sun on the Rhine. The same thing happened to Sun on the Rhine. And he had a second and a third act to his career. And mm-hmm. Prajan Oja... Um, I looked at his spat numbers one day. He was getting hammered in the smat after he got called for chucking. His his game completely fell apart. But I also still want to mention how good those guys were. Yeah, I mean, really, it makes me question if India's evaluation of leg spinners is up to mark or not. Because, okay, let's forget about Kumble, but then you've got Rahul Sharma, sure, fell off the grid. You look at Chahal, and I think he's been underused. Mm-hmm by India's T20 team. He wasn't there at the UAE World Cup, so that tells you a lot. And then this new guy, uh, also Rahul Chahar fans or any other cricketers who are watching this, go, if, if you're, if you're brown, just go for the cornrows. I mean, it totally works for him. <laughs> so I would definitely say go for the cornrows. But again, I nice thought hair. he was a good leg spinner and all of a sudden he's, I don't know where he is. Similar story with Kuldeep Yadav. So I think there might be an issue with respect to having a bit of faith in the leggies uh, in yeah. India. Or I maybe think, I'm wrong. I, but I think maybe that's there true. is no doubt that Indian cricket culture respects finger spin more than wrist spin. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of that is the fact that in India specifically, you need to bowl your spin quicker. And it's very hard to bowl your spin quicker when you're a wrist spinner because you're putting extra revolutions on the ball. So it naturally slows down. So I mm-hmm. do think that plays a part. But But you're right. I mean... I think at times they have, they've got good wrist spinners who've come through and they've not really treated them correctly in the way mm-hmm. that perhaps other teams have tried to. But it, it's, it's a fascinating um, side part of all of that. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned flukes and here's one MVP season-ish. It's kind of right up there. I think you could definitely classify it as MVP because he was really, really critical for RCB in that season. But I, I personally think that it was a fluke because I haven't just been sold after that. Or even during that period, I was like, I just feel like this guy's getting lucky. But I'll tell you what Harshil Patel did have is the second best true wickets numbers in that, what was it? IPL 14. So not too long ago, it was two seasons ago. Plus 10.1, only behind Imran Tahir's plus yeah. 10.2, and also a true economy of minus 0.3. So he was actually MVP level in that season. But again, it seems like he's had this massive fall from grace, and he's a full toss machine all of a sudden. So what's your take on Harshil? Do you think that was a fluke, or is there still hope for Harshil, given that he's also on the wrong side of 30? 
So I think he is a bowler. So um, do you know Muhammad Khan, the um, American uh, guy who worked for Jamaica? Ali Khan? No, Muhammad, Muhammad Khan, who worked for the Jamaica Tallawallers oh. and another... Uh, I do. Yeah. I think I think you I, I think, think you would have come across him. I'm sure he sent you an angry message or a friendly message when you've said something about Pakistani cricket. He, he's he's not a Pakistani um uh, but but his family well I mean he's American kid but uh from a Pakistani mm-hmm. family. Certainly Pakistan is his team. I saw him and he's very, one of the smartest people I know in cricket. And he sent mm-hmm. a message up recently saying that Harshal Patel was a bits and pieces player and he didn't understand why uh RCB went for him. I spent that that breakthrough season trying to work out if Harshal Patel was a fluke or not. Mm-hmm. And I talked to a lot of players about him, and it turned out that what he was doing, and I've seen this happen a lot, is that particular season he got an incredible amount of drop on the ball. And we have seen uh, Dwayne Bravo is a perfect example of this, mm-hmm. where there have been years when Dwayne Bravo gets hit everywhere and there are years where he doesn't get hit anywhere. And I think it's the years where he can put the amount uh, – um, uh, revolutions that he needs to be able to put on that ball are the years where he does very well. I think Harshal Patel strung two good years together and he struggled a little bit more this year. Although I don't think he was, I mean, he was bad, but I don't think he was as bad as perhaps. And don't forget he was injured for a lot of the year. Remember, he mm-hmm. wasn't batting. That's fair. Um, but what Harshal Patel does is very, the conversations everyone's had about Harshal Patel, I've been, I was having with about DJ Bravo for years, which is, I don't get this, but when you start to talk to the players, you realize it's about the drop that they get on the ball. If he can mm. repeat that, he could do it. But what you do see is a lot of guys who who rely on the drop of the ball from just putting so many revolutions on it, they have really good two years and then a really bad year and then a really good three years and then a really bad two years. And it's because the stress of trying to put that many revolutions on a ball on your fingers, on your wrist, on your mm. elbow, on your shoulder is immense. And it's really hard to be able to do that. That's why baseball pitchers, um, you know, are treated the way they are. It's not just the speed is one thing, but the other thing is putting the revolutions on the ball um, takes so much out of your arm. I think that's the thing with Harsh Patel. I still think he's a fantastic player. Having said that, he is getting older, right? And mm. I think the difference between him and Darren Bravo, uh, Darren Bravo, there's a lot of differences <laughs> between him and Darren yeah. Bravo. The difference between him and, and DJ Bravo was essentially that I think Bravo was a genius at Yorkers and different angles and different lines of attack and outthinking batters and knowing when to try different methods. Harsha Patel isn't on that level. So if he can't get that level of revolution on the ball, or he's also very good at getting reverse swing, or if he can't get reverse swing on occasions, he's basically just a fast medium bowler who can go. Right, and I think Bravo's main skill really was in the times when he couldn't get that incredible drop. Was that he was very good at other things as well. Um, but I, no, I don't think Harshal Patel's season was a fluke. I think it was down to the amount of revolutions he put on the ball, and he was the one putting the revolutions on that ball. So I'm not going to sit here and say that he didn't deserve that season. I thought he was fantastic that year. I did think at the time that it would be very hard for him to ever maintain that level again, mm. and I think he's proven that. But I still think he's a really good bowler. All right, then another thing that he will never have in common with DJ Bravo is the vocal cords, of course, yeah. because <laughs> DJ Bravo has produced a fair few bangers. Um, but anyway, one final anomaly that I want to touch on, and then there's a broader question with respect to uh, the piece. But I wanted to talk about, and this is completely the Pakistani side of me uh, asking you this question. And by no means am I making a comparison between both these players because there's only one obvious answer to who is better. 
or who is the better bowler. But in IPL 13, Jaspreet Bumrah was second in the charts for true wickets yep. and third in the charts for true economy. And we've talked about a lot of spinners, but this is just only like the second pacer or third pacer we're talking about who has those kind of numbers mm. and made the piece really or the, the series. So I want you to give me an honest assessment of whether that season, the COVID season where Jaspreet Bumrah bowled that well in IPL 13 was as good as Sohail Tanvir bowled in IPL 1. I think it was better than Sohail Tanvir in season 1. And I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what we were doing in season 1. Right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I, I don't know, did I, I can't even remember if I mentioned Sohail Tanvir. I might have in the video actually when I was talking about the Bumrah season. Mm -hmm. I just think that if you can do what he did when everyone knew who he was. Sohail Tanvir was known. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to mm -hmm. pretend like no one had ever seen him before. People knew about him. But he had a weird action, which obviously mm -hmm. Boomerang also has, but it took players a long time to get used to that action. And he was bowling at an advanced level when people weren't bowling at that level. Jasper mm -hmm. Boomerang was really well known. Everyone mm -hmm. had seen him. Everyone had faced him. Everyone knew what the best T20 bowling methods were and everything by that stage. So I think that is a better season, but there's not a lot in it. But... The fact that Bumrah is one of the most dissect uh, him and Ashwin are probably the two most dissected bowlers ever in the history of of cricket, right? Mm -hmm. Go on to go on to you know um, was it is it called Telegram? Is that what it's called? The Indian is it? Oh yeah, there is something like yeah, that, whatever right? that thing. There's just people dissecting those guys over and over again. Um, you know, Instagram, uh, YouTube, where Twitter before they get ripped down. Whatever people are just dissecting <laughs> those bowling actions again and again and again to be able to be that good in that kind of spotlight when people knew what was going on. Um, I think it's a little bit different than Sohail Tanvir, who caught people a little bit more by surprise. And I say mm -hmm. that as someone who thinks that Sohail Tanvir was a fantastic bowler and completely deserving of being uh, a great... I just think that Jasper Boomer that year was better than him and has probably had a better career. But it's a little bit like comparing AB Devies to Andrew Simons at a certain point mm -hmm. in that... Maybe that's not the best example, but it's similar in that what, how old was Sohail Tanvir in that year? He was not that old, actually, probably 25-ish yeah. because he had burst onto the scene in the inaugural T20 World Cup in 2007. Right. He was Pakistan's wild card. So, so next year he played the IPL. Yeah, so I think that means he grew up outside of that T20 culture and would have mm -hmm. been even better had he played in it beforehand. Does that make sense? Andrew Simons mm -hmm. is the same thing. Andrew Simons right. starts playing T20 cricket, I don't know, maybe a little bit later, 27, 28, I think, when he starts playing for Kent and starts playing it. And had they both grown uh, up in T20 cricket, they would have been even better at it than they were already. And I think Jasper Boomer is the person who grew up in T20 cricket, right? And so I think from that perspective, everything he did was just a little bit more polished than Sohal Tanvir. But... So I just think Sohail Tanvir was absolutely fantastic. And he was so good that he probably stuck around for years later when um, he only had, you know, the odd good year, just because people still remembered that that World Cup and that original IPL where he's fantastic. Just on, on an aside, just for fun, if you remember the, uh, 
If you remember the IPL, um, was it Lalit Modi who said that there were no Pakistanis in because they weren't good enough? And that was like about two years after Sohan Tanvir had absolutely torn the, <laughs> yeah. the entire tournament in half. Um, and Shahid Afridi still existed. It's just, it's mm-hmm. a funny thing to think back on and just be like, just, you could have just been honest. That was just a stupid thing to say and everyone was going to make fun of you. But anyway. I remember this was, this was that season in which India said that, oh, we will pick Pakistani players. And then no one picked up a Pakistani yeah. player. And that was like... Headlines everywhere. But anyway, we're, we're veering off topic over here. And just for the record, for everyone who's watching or listening, I do not think that Sohail Tanvir is a better bowler than Jaspreet Bumrah. No, I think but Jaspreet that was Bumrah is the best was, bowler. You're talking about yeah. one year, right? Yeah. Like, and I think it's a, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think it's a really, really good question to be asked, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it all the way through. But now that you've asked me and I've got more time to talk about it, I just think it's Bumrah. <laughs> but it's there's not much. I'd take either of them. Yeah. I'm okay. Mm. Yeah, but like Jaspreet Bumrah, I think is definitely the best bowler India has ever had. So wishing him a speedy recovery. Last question before we wrap this up, Jared. And I think this one is very, very relevant with respect to where do we go from here? I mean, if you go to the third part of your series, of course, in which you kind of wind it down with the more recent seasons, you'll notice and anyone who's read the pieces will notice that the last few seasons, a couple of seasons, they haven't produced an out-and-out MVP. Yeah. So given the fact that, you know, IPL, as we've seen in this season, is moving towards a position or, or, or phase where there's a lot of parity between teams, lots of teams are in it uh, till the very end and you never really know who the playoff spots might go to till like the last mm. few days. So given that that is now the landscape, it's a 10-team league and you see a lot of that parity and the levels of the teams are fairly similar or, or more closer to each other than they've ever been, I suppose. Do you see no out-and-out MVPs in the future as well? Uh, I think it's something worth watching. I'd be, I think the outlier seasons. So we didn't talk about Andrew Ty's season, for instance, where mm-hmm. he comes in with a new delivery. No one else has ever seen it. Um, and he completely dominates that year. I wonder if that and Malinga's bowling action and Sunil Narayan's bowling action and Andre Russell's hitting. I do wonder if those sorts of things are harder now because you've got scouts all around the world and people can mm-hmm. look at more video and do more research and, and everything else. And I wonder if you could ever have a, one of those years where a, sort of a Chris Gale level year going forward, just because even by the end of his career, Chris Gale was struggling to have those because we knew more about Chris Gale and where to bowl to him. And the one thing I've noticed, you know, as an analyst, especially, you know, working for teams is there's no complete batter. Do you know what I mean? There's no batter you can't, find a spot to slow them down or to trip them up or, you know, whatever that may be. And I wonder if now we all have so much information that that is the case with batting. And then with bowling, it would have to be again. I mean, if Marco Janssen somehow, if Marco Janssen played for Zimbabwe, he's a good one for you. And because of that, he wasn't picked for the first couple of years while he was developing. Maybe you have the opportunity to have a season where he hits the IPL at 22 rather than at whatever it was, 18 or 19, and he's ready, right? And he's just ready to go. And he's on top of his game and people haven't faced that much of him and he comes through and he does it. I, those, I don't think, even if if he came through Zimbabwe now, like, you know, even someone like Blessing, everyone has had a look at Blessing mm-hmm. in the nets and they've had a look at footage of him and everything else. I just find it, 
it's harder to hide those sorts of talents off. And, you know, mm. Andrew Ty going from a club player to an IPL star was such a fast change. And I'm not sure we will see things like that going ahead. In And we might not see Rahul Sharma in the end. So I do think it's a more even season. And I'm going to go back to the basketball because we started with the basketball. And you look at some of the early seasons of the NBA – you know, and you have the George Mikan effect, right? And then after that, you have the Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain effect. Then you have the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar effect. Those kinds of years that those guys have, you have to be a it, – it's much harder to have those kinds of years now um, that they did. So I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was probably the best player in the world, like his first year, right? And – uh, you know, Bill Russell was probably the best defensive player in the world, like in his second year, and then the best player in the world, like in his third year, and all that sort of stuff. But they were, in some cases, like a foot taller than everyone else, and incredible athletes. And as the NBA goes on, there's lots of seven footers who can move, right? And and so now you have, you know, the NBA has three MVP candidates coming into this year. They're all basically seven foot tall. They're all incredibly skillful in a way that seven foot people should not be skillful in, right? And so it means that you could say that the Joker had one of the greatest ever um, runs over the last three years, but you could also argue that Giannis and Embiid were really, really close to him. Whereas if Joker with the same kind of skill set comes in 30 or 40 years ago, he's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and there's no one else anywhere near him. And I think that's the era of the IPL we're getting to where they're they're searching further and wider and we have more information and we're not getting individual freak seasons in the same way. And I do wonder if that is the big change. Having said that, there's so much money in this sport and we're about to go through a whole, you know, with the, with the U S cricket, with UAE cricket, with Nepalese cricket, all these different things coming through. Potentially Saudi cricket. Saudi cricket. Yeah. Saudi cricket, all these Mm. things. Maybe that, produces a bunch of freakish performances coming up but right at the moment i do see it as a very pa- uh, um i was gonna say a parative i'm not sure parative is a word a parity driven league <laughs> and i think that we see that in the in the league table you know we had sunrises probably should have got five wins so the top team was going to get what 10 wins and the bottom team was going to get five wins there's a bunch of teams between seven and eight right i think we're seeing a similar thing with the mvp at the moment Maybe I'm wrong and, and there's an explosion out of it, but I think in future you won't get like one-off seasons like Sohal Tanvir or Shane Watson or whoever that may be, but you you might get two, three, four players who are really, really good and suddenly they paradigm shift the entire sport so that we don't see them as one-off individual MVP seasons anymore. And I suppose that's what I'm thinking going ahead um, is going to be the difference. You won't get one player who's an outlier. You'll get maybe five or six players who are all really, really good and it doesn't look like an outlier anymore. Yeah, well, that makes absolute sense. And I do hope to see a future in which, you know, T20 leagues are that competitive and they do reach that level of parity because barring the IPL, you see a bunch of other leagues where you have some really, really terrible teams, right? And then you're just waiting for the playoffs because you know that these teams will never make it. So no one likes that. And even though this robs us of out-and-out MVPs, it does give us a better level of uh, competition. So I think that is... in. Like the, it's in favor of the health of the game at large. But anyway, thank you so much for your time and sharing all of your thoughts with me, Jared. Of course, I'm, I bet the viewers have enjoyed as well. And yeah, thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of the Footmarks and we'll be coming to you 
once every week and we'll be discussing Jared's work with you. And yeah, that's how it's going to be. So that's all for now. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.